Psalm 78, verse 1. It says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we've heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children so that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. That's all I'm going to read this morning. Um, I thought it was interesting that Bethany released a little bit of a prophetic word during the beginning of worship today and addressed the potential for all of us to forget our first love, to forget God. And in no way does that need to be cringed upon like, oh no, we're being accused. That's not it at all. She spoke a reality that most of us that have been saved a while have moved in and out of more than once. It's not that we hate God. It's not that we despise God. It's almost worse relationally. It's that we somehow find ourselves able to forget God, which seems incomprehensible to this glorious, awesome creator. This amazing father who gives us physical life and gives us spiritual life. This God who has pledged himself to us from before the foundation of the earth when we were conceived in his heart, then to that time we were conceived on earth, brought forth into life, and then he brings us eternal life. And then he blesses us and he provides for us and he protects us. How many of you know one of the glories of heaven is when they put up on the big screen up there, if I can say it that way, all the times God protected you and you were completely unaware that you even needed his protection. So there's so much that we do know about him, so much that we don't yet know about him, but it's amazing to me that I can actually forget him at times. That I can live a 24-hour period or a 48-hour period and know that he's there theologically but have no leaning towards him relationally. And so when the psalmist is writing this psalm, one of the things he's exhorting us to do is, hey, children of God, don't forget him. Remember him. He, he actually wrote into the law of Moses. He gave prescriptions, scripturally speaking, that we would never forget God. He, he imposed a system that we would generationally always remember him. And so this morning, I'm just calling us back to that today. And so let's just go through these 11 verses and you receive what you can this morning. But I want to begin in the first three verses. I want to call these first three verses the desire of God for fathers. 
And it can apply to moms or not moms or not dads, male and female, young and old, but specifically dads, listen to this. Here's the desire of God for the fathers. He, he first of all wants you and me in life to cultivate a listening heart. He says, give ear. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Now, this is what we call a psalm of instruction. This was actually an ancient song that was written in order to instruct people about the ways of God. Asaph is the human writer, and he's speaking prophetically on behalf of the Lord. It's the Lord's voice, but it's Asaph's song. And what we have here is this thing. I want you, my people, to cultivate a listening heart. God is always talking. He talks through his word. He talks through creation. He talks through the Holy Spirit. He uses us to, to relate and release his voice prophetically in our generation. And the key is never to wonder if God has anything to say. He's constantly communicative. He is always talking. The issue is that we forget to listen sometimes. And so I love the way this opens up, the psalm of instruction, a masculine song what it means it's a psalm of instruction he says I want you to listen to everything I'm about to tell you but he actually doubles up on it in the next part of the verse and the second part of verse one he says don't only just give ear I want you to incline your ears plural to the words of my mouth it seems to layer what he just said he's like don't just hear the sound of it give yourself to it we all know what it's like to hear things that we don't receive. We, we know what it's like to hear but not listen. If you've ever raised a toddler, you know the art of hearing but not listening. Some of the wives in the building can say, yeah, my, my, my husband has a hearing problem. We might say, well, well let's get him some hearing aids. She, she would say, not that kind of hearing. He actually has a listening problem. So it's possible to have the physical ability to hear, but not necessarily the spiritual aptitude to intentionally listen. And so the psalmist is saying, I want you to listen. Gentlemen, come on, get with me in this thing for a moment. God wants your heart. Your heart is going to be impacted through hearing him. He wants us to live daily believing that he loves us enough to communicate to us. The idea of a silent, withdrawn God probably comes more from our relationships with our earthly fathers than it does from the Bible because the Bible does not communicate a silent, withdrawn God. The Bible communicates a God that loves to talk to his kids. And the question is whether or not we have been made aware of that and as a response, we're inclining ourselves. We are intentionally maintaining a heart that not only hears but will receive what it is that God's saying. And then we can prioritize what I'm going to call a retaining heart down in verse number two and three. Listen to this. He said, I'm going to speak to them in parables. I'm going to utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and we have known. Now, let me talk to my uber prophetic brothers and sisters. Everybody likes a fresh rhema word. We love a right now word from God. We are a prophetic culture here at New Bridge and IHOP. We believe in the gift of prophecy. We believe in the biblical parameters about how to release those words and to test those words and then to receive those words and live out those words. And I appreciate the fact that we're a prophetic community, but not every valid word from God is a fresh prophetic word. Sometimes he just says, I've got a lot to say to you. Go back to what I've already said. Open your Bible. I'm going to release some deep things. We see in the, the Hebrew translated to English here, I'm going to utter some dark sayings. It's not dark in the sense of spiritual darkness. It's dark in the sense of in the depths, from the shadows. 
The Lord is saying here, I've got some things to say to you, and it's not necessarily going to be a, a, a fresh rhema word. It's going to be things that we have already heard and known. That's what the psalmist is getting at here. So in our, our desire to hear something fresh, to hear something new, to hear a word from the Lord that maybe is prophetic and not necessarily a verse in the Bible, we need to leave room for the fact that sometimes God says, I actually want you to know what I've written, not just what I'm saying right now. Because what he has written, he is saying right now. And so we have to recognize this. And so all of this is the desire of God for us. What is all of it summarized by? God says, will you continue to live your life listening to me? Will you listen to me? And will you intentionally listen for me? I believe as we progress further or closer and closer to the end of the age, the need to hear God is not a luxury that we're going to be able to do with or without. It's going to be that time where the prophetic word might be so rare in a certain season that we could say there was a famine of the prophetic in the land. And so when God speaks, our hearts and minds have to be already positioned to hear from him. So he goes a little bit further, and so let's do this. And this is where we start getting into kind of the, the history that the psalmist is bringing in. And he's going to give us history in order to call us to address what is coming, our future. And so here's the privilege that God offers to fathers. First of all, let's recognize this. We, as a, as a collective group of believers, let's recognize that there's a longstanding pattern of influence that God has instituted into the community of his people. What is it? He says, I want to utter the things that we've heard and we've seen and we've learned that our fathers told us. Now, guys, I want you to hear me on this. Um, there is an incredible privilege that the Lord offers us, those of us especially who have physical children, that God wants ours to be the primary voice of the kingdom in their lives. And whether we are aware of it or not, Almost all fathers, by virtue of either intentional communication or example, or even at times by what we don't intentionally pattern our lives after, but our kids are picking up on what's important to us. They're actually learning what is important by what they hear from us and what they see from our lives. And so the pattern of influence is almost a, a law within the, the kingdom of God. It's just one of those influences, those realities that nobody escapes. So I realize as a dad, I, I'm, I'm imparting to my children, my, my daughter's an adult now, my son turns 14 in a week, and, and I recognize that my years of intentional paternal influence are, are fewer now than they were when I first began. And so there have been many moments in my life that I look back and I, I, I feel that sting of regret I feel that, ugh, I wish when they were four, I wish when they were eight, I wish when they were 12 and so on, that I had been less about imparting my stress, less about imparting um, certain struggles, less about imparting my entertainment or my leisure, and more intentional about imparting life and love and the gospel and the Bible to them. Now, I don't, I don't want to raise my kids in a legalistic home. I don't want to, you know, walk around, you know, just constantly spouting off scripture and be completely detached from them relationally. Fun is good. 
We like to have fun with our children. That's actually spiritual. That's actually good. Laughter is not sinful. Entertainment is not necessarily sinful if you're using a gospel-filtered heart to be able to know what's good and what's not. But there is an impartation that God has given you as a privilege. Now, the danger in this is there, it can actually facilitate what I just confessed. There could be men in the room, that, and there probably are, that just say, man, I blew it. I, I just blew it as a dad. Well, I'm going to take you back to Dustin's word that he released. God's not done with you yet. He's not done with you. There's a glorious thing. It's called a do-over in the kingdom. They're called grandkids, amen? Grandkids are a divine gift from God that lets you do for your grandkids everything that you failed to do with your kids. Now, your adult children might not like it. They'll be like, hey, where was that when, you know, you were raising me? But here's the thing. What, what we learn as we grow, man, if, if we had the wisdom, dads, if we had the wisdom then that we do now, we would parent differently then. And God says, well, I'll tell you what, I love you, so I'm going to give you grandbabies. I'm going to give you a chance to redeem yourself. But sometimes it's not our kids or our grandkids. Sometimes it's just the next generation. And there is such a spiritual orphanhood that is predominating the generation that's coming up. And Amy and I are finding this out. Uh, I'm 49. She's younger. And we are finding out, as we're not the young ones anymore, we're finding out that there are a lot of people in their teens and 20s and early 30s that are looking for spiritual parents. And it's a privilege. See, that's what God says. God says, I want, and he's speaking specifically, it's not just men, but he wants the men to take ownership of imparting kingdom influence to their own children, their grandchildren, and the generation that's coming up behind. And so if you've got a brainwave and you've got a heartbeat, then you are fully qualified to enter into some aspect of fathering in the kingdom. He says this in verse number four, that this continuance, our whole lives, is offered to us as a privilege. He says, we're not going to hide them, those truths, those dark sayings, those deep kingdom realities. We're not going to hide them from their children. I don't think that there's a man in the room that would intentionally um, understand and know that God has given him something eternal, something of value something precious and that man say but I'm gonna hide it I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give it to those who need it that would be evil that would be wrong but most of us don't intentionally hide kingdom truths it is this forgetting God aspect because we get busy with what we call real life I mean gentlemen somebody's got to pay the bills right typically if, if, if it's an able-bodied man, he's going to be working. He's got to pay the bills. And he doesn't get a vote a lot of times about what he does and doesn't want to do at work. It's just handed to him. And he, he can't just quit on that. And then, of course, he's got to sleep. And, of course, he's got to eat. And he's got to rest at certain times. And then there's always something to be done around the house. And, listen, men are often pulled in so many different directions. And then, if we're being honest... Because, you know, the priority is for us to love our wives like Jesus loves the church. And so just a quick word of wisdom here. Our wives come before our kids. And if that's been flip-flop, you need to unflip it or unflop it because your wife comes before your kids. And so the truth, the reality, it's hard sometimes, is, is sometimes our kids get the leftovers. And by a lack of intentionality and stewarding our time and stewarding our availability and making sure that they have access to us and the most important things in life, we sometimes hide the most important things we could offer to our children. Let me give you this verse from Deuteronomy 4.9. God actually put this in the law. This was part of the governing law of ancient Israel. And the Deuteronomy 4.9 says, take care 
and keep your soul diligently, meaning take care of your own heart, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest you depart, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, make them known to your children and your children's children. It is amazing to me that God, gentlemen, is working in our lives today thinking two generations out from us. He says, what I'm doing, what I have shown you, what I'm doing right now, I want you to impart that to your children, and I want you to impart it to the children's children. You see, it isn't about us. I know sometimes we feel like, yeah, we know that. It's never about us, but we don't need to say it in that kind of a defeated tone. What we need to say is this, is that God, everything he's doing in our life is for our benefit. It's for his good pleasure, which should lead to our highest pleasure. But he doesn't want it to be self-contained. He says, in essence, the things that I've taught you, the things that I've allowed in your life, the, the blessings and the burdens, uh, the, the powerful moments and the painful moments, I've ordained these things to happen in order to build you into the type of person that I want to release into the lives of your children, your grandchildren, and the generation coming behind you. And the danger for a lot of us is that we just get lost in the moment and we say, hey, this is a little much for us, and yet the Lord promises to enter into that with us because it's a privilege to know him, and it's a privilege to be able to learn from him. And some of the things that you've learned, some of the experiences that you've had, some of the things that God has done, the worst thing we can do is put them up on the shelf to where they spoil, that we need to take them down while they're fresh and they're real to us and communicate and re-communicate, maybe even risk over-communicating so that even at the risk of annoying our children, they'll never forget the testimony that God had sealed in our heart as he made himself real to us. So we're not gonna hide them from our children. And then in verses four and five, we read these, but tell them, proactive, an imperative command, tell them to the coming generation, tell what to them, Asaph? The glorious deeds of the Lord. Tell them of his might. Tell them of the wonders that he has done. He established his testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. I like to break up the activity of God in my life and just in general. And there's more to it, but it helps me to think kind of uh, summarily. I, I think of God and his activity in three primary ways. First of all are the ways of God. How does God work? You learn that as you follow him. You learn that through failure sometimes. You learn it by him stretching your faith, by him humbling you, by him breaking you. We're told all throughout Scripture that God's ways are nothing like our ways. So immediately, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to get this intuitively. I have to learn this. I have to learn the ways of God. And you do that by intentionally watching how he operates in Scripture and how he operates in your life. The second category would be the works of God. What does he actually do? What is God doing in our lives? What has he done in your life? What, what is the active work of God going on in your life right now? See, I think if we're being intentional about that, we can answer that question. It may take, we may need five minutes to think it through, but if we take five minutes and say, what is it that the Father is doing in my life right now? And then when we conclude what that is, we don't want to just keep that to ourselves. We want to release it under the coming generation. And so it's not only his ways and his works, but his words. And I think that's primarily what Asaph was referring to here. 
because he's talking about the signs and the wonders, and then he's talking about establishing the, the testimony in Israel and appointing a law in Jacob, or a testimony in Jacob and a law in Israel, and that's speaking of the written word, the Jewish Bible, the law. And so he's saying, that he ends that verse 5 by saying, we're commanded to impart that to our children. You know, one of the greatest things about being a community of believers is because we're all gifted differently, we're all wired differently. I, I want to make sure we recognize that in ancient Israel, there were 12 tribes and only one of those tribes was to be immersed constantly in the things of God. And that was the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. So 92% of the tribes were not to be spending every day in priestly duties. Um, and then when you throw in the, the, the random prophets, you might have 10% of ancient Israel whose 24-7 were wrapped up in the things of God. Well, what about the other 90%? The other 90% may have not been liturgical. They have not, may not have been what we would call professional ministry. They may not have been called to that. And yet the Lord says, but I do want you to impart who I am, how I am, who I am, and what I say. I want you to impart that to the next generation. Um, I, I want to let some dads off the hooks, and I even may want to educate and, and help some, some women to think differently, some wives. It's not necessarily the call of your husband and your children's father to sit down and have a didactic Bible study with them going verse by verse with a Strong's Concordance, some lexicons, and all of that kind of technically heavy Bible impartation. Now, I'm all for communicating the Word, but I'm going to tell you something. Most kids can't endure an hour-long technical Bible liturgical study. But I'm going to tell you what every kid hungers for. Dad, tell me about God. Dad, what's God like? Dad, when did you get saved? Dad, what, what has God done in your life? And, and to allow a forum where kids can ask questions... And one of the greatest things that will help a husband or a dad's walk with Jesus, and when there's an environment of children being able to ask questions, dad will have to master this answer. You know, that's a great question. I promise you tomorrow I will answer that. And then you answer it. You give yourself time. What does that do? It allows for you to impart to the kids this, this probably unrealistic belief that every man is to be a walking Bible scholar, I don't know that we need to continue to pressure that expectation on men. In a community of believers, we want to expose our kids to teaching and preaching. Hear me on this, parents. Dads, I'm going to help you, but I'm also going to challenge you on this. Have your kids and your grandkids in church. We just spent a week, five days in a row, 24 hours a day, minus sleeping hours, pouring into the next generation. 100 and something kids, 125, 140 kids, and probably 60, 70 adult volunteers, some of them taking time off of work, others saying no to everything else in their schedule. What were they doing? They were spiritual fathers and mothers pouring into the next generation. We want to help you with that. But what we can't do is be there around the dinner table or in the car or in the home where our, our children want to know that Jesus is real, not just on Sunday, but all during the week. And listen, you don't have to give a 55-minute sermon. I'll do that for you, amen? That's just the way me and Billy flow. You, you don't have to do that. But man, dropping handfuls on purpose along the way and giving your kids nuggets. What, what is he talking about here? Well, go a little bit further. Just go a little bit further down with me. You know, he spoke of the glorious deeds of the Lord. He spoke of the might, the power of God. 
He spoke of the wonders that God has done. Those are testimonial things too. Yes, we want to reveal all the things that Jesus has done in Scripture, turning water into wine, opening blind eyes, causing the lame to stand up and walk, raising the dead, walking on the waves, all of the miracles of of physical healings and redemption stories, forgiving the adulterous woman, and, and all of those amazing conversions. We want to tell about those things, but we also want to make sure, friends, that we have some of our own stories to tell. My kids can tell you my salvation story ad nauseum. I mean, they have heard it their whole life. Some of you have been around here for years. You're like, when I start saying it, you start, you're, you're lip syncing my testimony because I've said it so much. Why? Because as, as a believer, I want to make sure I am recounting the deeds and the mighty works of the Lord, not just in the Bible, but in my life. And so you have your stories. Don't, don't store them up for yourselves. Don't let them spoil on the shelf. Tell people, if you're boasting in Jesus, then listen, he's going to bless it. He will bless your boast as long as it's in him. And so as we go further down in here, look, look at how God designs to use fathers. In verse number six, this, this, this captures me. Verses six and seven really own me from Psalm 78 and the verses I read. That the next generation might know them, might know what? His glorious deeds, his might, the wonders that he does, and, and, and his word, the testimony that he gave to Israel. That would be the parallel of us having our gospel, the Bible. That the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, that they might arise and tell them to their children. I think probably many of you that kind of flow in the prophetic and you're aware prophetically of what kind of season we're experiencing as Christians, American Christians in the kingdom, what the Lord is doing right now, one part of it that is not insignificant is the fulfillment of Malachi 4.6 where we're seeing the hearts of fathers being turned back to children. That, that literally the Holy Spirit is doing a work. He's literally moving on the hearts of dads. And sometimes it's through power, powerful conviction where as dads we look back and we, we're grieved. We say, oh man, I've given myself and, and little tributaries to other things that haven't really made an eternal impact. I, and my kids or my grandkids have, have paid a little bit of a price. And so he's, he's not above a convicting us. When he wants to make a change, that's not shame or guilt. It's the Lord saying, hey, I, I want to address this in your life, and then I want to help you with it. And so what does he do when we confess, Lord, I haven't been the dad that I could have been or the dad that my kids might have needed me to be? And so we repent before the Lord. We say, God, forgive me for that. And the Lord doesn't shame us. He doesn't scream at us. He, he does, but what he does do is he says, I'm glad you confessed that to me. Go confess it to your kids. Go tell your kids the same thing you just told me, that you're sorry for some absenteeism. You're sorry for some neglect. You're sorry that you, you didn't know how or were afraid to take spiritual leadership over uh, them and their lives. So go and tell them. And then when you confess it, start doing the opposite start changing. Repentance is a Greek word in the New Testament. It's called metanoia. It means we, our thinking is changed about a matter. We come into agreement with God, and if it's truly repentance, then our behavior will follow our changed thinking. And so we start acting, actually living in ways that are different than we used to. And so the Lord is doing that right now. Brothers, I just want to say this. If the Lord is turning your heart to your kids your grandkids, 
or the next generation. Maybe you don't have another shot with your kids and, and maybe you never got a shot with your grandkids, but there's a next generation that need to hear from you. They don't just need to hear of your mountaintop experiences. They need to know what it's like to be stuck in a valley and to wait on the Lord there, to humble, be humbled there, to experience the coldness and the darkness and the isolation there, only to be led out of there by the God who never leaves you there. See, the next generation needs to understand that. And so the Lord says that. He says, I want the next generation to know me. I want them to know my wonders and my ways, the children yet unborn. Watch that. Just the language there. God says, yeah, there's some children that I've ordained that aren't born yet. He's actually thinking holistically and then kingdom-wise over children that have not even been conceived or born yet. And so God is placing value on those that are coming, and he wants to prepare us today to be ready for them. And he's turning our hearts to the children, and the hearts, by the way, of the children to the fathers. Let me, let me give you this. Some of you just had miserable experiences with your earthly fathers, and you can't reclaim the time. You can't go back and fix it. I, I want to be very clear here. I talk with people every week who are carrying as adults deep, deep wounds that came through neglect, abuse, or abandonment from a father. And I, I'm gonna speak just kind of forcefully, but with hope on this thing. You have to bury that season of your life. There is a time in the process of physically burying a loved one where we grieve and we go to the graveside and we bury and we grieve there, we mourn it. But at some point, you have to walk away from the graveside. You're not meant to live there. There's nothing for you there. And when you've come to terms with, maybe you, you can phrase it any way you want, I got robbed when it came to having a dad. Or I had a dad and he was not like God the Father. Or, or my, my father didn't care for me or provide for me or validate me in any way. You can acknowledge those things, but you can also be delivered from being victimized by those things. Because, friends, there comes a place where God wants to turn the hearts of the children to the parents, even the parents that didn't do them right. doesn't mean you have to pretend or fake anything. It just means this. Don't let it be a perpetual wound. If they wounded you when you were young and you're still living with that open wound as an adult, then the, the grace and the blood of Jesus needs to be applied to that and you can be fully delivered and you can be healed and you won't repeat the same mistakes in your parenthood that your father or your mother did with you. What happens when we start turning fathers to children, children to fathers, and we start becoming acquainted with the ways and the works and the words of God. What happens, verse 7 happens. All of this is unto a point and a purpose from the heart of God so that they should set their hope in God. Setting your hope is your responsibility. And I want to say to dads and just let's toss in moms here, every day our kids are getting communicated from our lives where our hope is anchored. I don't want us to impart to our children that money is to be their hope, that success is to be their hope, that physical beauty as defined by the entertainment industry, industry is to be their hope. Athletics is, is not to be their hope. 
nothing in, in the world of just religion. We don't want their formal religion to ever serve as an imposter for their hope. So many people down here in the Bible Belt were brought up and religion was the hope. And by the time they turned 15 years old, if they're in a context of religion, they wake up and they say, this is completely fake. This is fake. But because their hope was placed in religion, when they throw out religion, they, they can't differentiate. And many of them throw out God. Because God was always meant to be the anchor of their hope, but all they got was religion. So when they tossed out religion, they tossed out any possibility of ever having their hope anchored in God. And so it requires authenticity from us as leaders and parents that we might point people back to Jesus. Listen, your hope's never to be in a religious leader, not a priest, not a pastor, not an evangelist, not a, a prophet or a missionary. Th those may be super people, but they're fallible. They still have the sin imprint on them. Watch them for 24 hours. They will let you down. They will, if your hope is in them, leave you deflated. And so we love each other. We give grace to each other. We don't expect perfection from our parents or from our spouses or from our spiritual leaders. But ultimately, sometimes we have to get around all those people and say, there, there he is. There's Jesus on his throne. There's Jesus on his promises. I'm throwing my anchor right there. You're my hope because you never fail. You never change. You never forsake. You never abandon. You never abuse. You're the one in whom I am going to anchor my hope. And so what, what, what the psalmist is saying here is, that, yeah, the more we impart to our children and the next generation the reality of who God is, the more they're going to have a legitimate hope in him instead of um, some lesser thing. So finishing up here, let me just get down to verses 8 through 11. I've got four minutes, so give me five. Amen. I'm going to end it with some cautions. Uh, these are not condemnations. These are cautions. They may result in conviction, but they're cautions. Um, we, we can't exist off a diet of syrup. We have to have some grit every now and then. It's not always going to be sweet, and it's not always going to flow, and it's not always going to be syrupy. Sometimes we just need to get some grit in there. And so the psalmist ends in verses 8 through 11 with some cautions that he gives to all people, but specifically, I think in context, he's, he's speaking much to men. Um, here, here's the first caution. Make sure you learn from previous generational mistakes how many of you had big brothers or big sisters raise your hand wasn't it awesome that you got to see them mess up and you wrote it down and you're like never do that you were smart and you're also graced and blessed because you got to learn from their mistakes we need to learn that from previous generations especially in the realm of fatherhood verse 8 just says he tells them in verse 7, don't forget the works of God. Keep his commandments that they should not be like their fathers. Remember, this is sung. You know, up to this point, it's the mighty works of God. Hallelujah. The ways of God. Awesome. The law in Jacob, the testimony in Israel. Hallelujah. And then it comes this minor chord. And don't be like your dad. And sometimes that's the best advice that we can receive. He says, they should not be like their fathers. The best father represented in this room right now has areas of his life that the Holy Spirit will say, 
don't emulate him there. Because there's only one perfect man, and he's sitting on a throne in heaven. And no matter how hard the rest of us want to be like him, we still have areas in our lives that don't rise to the level of Jesus' approval. Now, I'm not endorsing hypocrisy. I'm not saying, hey, just no big deal, just ignore that, do as I say, not as I do. That's not the spirit I'm releasing right now. What I'm saying is this, there are blind spots and weak spots in every single husband and father. And God doesn't condemn that husband and father for those things, nor should any wife or child. But we can pray for increase, and while we're praying for increase on behalf of that father or that husband, we're also trusting that the Lord is working there and we choose not to pattern our lives after that part of their lives. It's in the word. God, guys, this is sometimes hard, but I'm gonna just tell you this. There are places in my life, as a, just so you know, I'm not coming off as a know-it-all. I, I try to be pretty transparent up here. But the, the number one area where I, 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 I intercede on my own behalf is not in pastoring, it's not in preaching, it's not in ministry, it's not in leadership. It's in the area of my husbandhood and my fatherhood. Because that to me is the area where it doesn't matter where else I succeed, I can't fail in that area. And that's where the Holy Spirit just shines his light sometimes. And when he shines his light, I'm like, can you turn that thing off? I don't want to look at this part of me anymore that's not where it should be. And he doesn't turn the light off. He just says, no, actually, I'm going to move it in a little closer. I'm going to get in there with you, and we're going to work on this thing. And those areas in my life where I've, I've actually had conversations with Amy and the kids before saying, this is an area where I'm in process. This is an area where I'm not on the mountain. I'm not under it, but I'm somewhere halfway up. This is an area, Landon, where as you become a dad, I hope you will excel in this area that I struggle in. And we have to be honest in those areas, but I would also say this, ladies, hear me this, I'm, I'm just going gonna, gonna to serve up the men a favor. Nagging is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's not. It is so counterproductive. Your husband will never be sanctified through the art of nagging. It's just not going to have criticizing, critiquing, and comparing him. Oh, I wish you could be like so-and-so. Well, he's not so-and-so. Guys, that was your chance to shout. <laughs> You're all afraid. <laughs> there you go, Brody. All right. So there are areas where we should not be like our fathers, and very specifically, I'm going to end on verses 8 through 10. He gives an example. He says, don't be like this stubborn, rebellious generation. By the way, there's, there's a generational failure in fatherhood. We all know that. And the Bible calls believing men, don't live like them. Just because it's acceptable in the culture and rampant in the culture does not mean it is to be acceptable or tolerated in our lives. He says it's a generation whose heart was not steadfast. Their spirit was not faithful to God. And then in verse 9, he calls them out calls out a whole tribe, the tribe of Ephraim. He says, they were armed with the bow. They had everything they needed to win. They knew the enemy. They knew the assignment. God had equipped them militarily. But the one thing that they didn't have was the heart to finish the fight. And it says they turned back on the day of battle. They didn't keep God's covenant, but they refused to work according to his law. So the end thought there, and remember, these cautions are from the Lord. 
you have to keep fighting, brother. You have to keep pressing in. It's not noble to just acknowledge where maybe you haven't done what was expected in the past. That's fine. You probably need to acknowledge that. But the fight's not over. The prize is still winnable. I think that Christian kids, especially as they get older, if a dad who wasn't on the mark growing up, if he'll come to them in the spirit of Jesus, in humility, in raw transparency with no defensiveness and say, I know I could have been better in these areas. Will you forgive me? Will you, will you please forgive me? Will you let me be a better father, a better husband, moving from this point forward? Most, most believing children, and even some that aren't believers, will acknowledge in that moment of your brokenness and your humility that there is something they've always longed for and this might be their last and best shot at ever getting to connect with that dad. Your battle's not over. Brother, you are equipped. You have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, according to Ephesians 1. You are complete in Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit within you. You may not know what to do with all the tools that you have, but that's what part of the faith journey is all about. We walk it out don't turn back in the day of battle. Keep marching. You have your spiritual bow. The bullseye is your kids' hearts, your grandkids' hearts, the next generation's heart. You want to pierce it with a, an arrow of love that shows them Jesus, even if it's late in the game. And for some of you that have never become fathers, but you will in the future, I'm going to encourage you. I would love to tell you mistakes that I made. There's a lot of men with gray follicles around here that would love to tell you mistakes that they made. Why? Not to glory in our failures, but so that your kids will reap. Well, we acknowledge where we could have done better. You will be able to take that mantle. You'll be able to run with that. Will you stand to your feet, all of us?